this is the second week of our Christmas series. I've entitled it Christmas, Faith or Fear and Faith in the Family of Jesus. And last week we looked at Joseph and what he had to teach us about the birth of Christ. And then this week we're going to look at the extended family a little bit of Jesus, at least the cousin of Mary in Zechariah and Elizabeth. Let me begin by asking a question. When, we, when you want to see God at work, when you expect to see God at work, where would you look? My guess is if we were to plan the coming of Christ into the world, we would recruit a great marketing firm who had access to all the various channels of media that we could think of, Facebook ads, public television announcements, billboards, internet websites that we could take over, certainly put ads on Netflix and Hulu and Amazon Prime and various other platforms where we know people's eyeballs would see it and anticipate it. But if you read the Bible, it would appear that when God wants to show that he's at work, there's a birth. There's a baby. It's the birth of a child. And think about it, nothing is more weak or more vulnerable than a child. In fact, human beings alone, we have offspring that cannot live without us. I mean, you think about there's so many animals, we're not animals, I know that, but there's so many animals that can give birth and their, their offspring can survive relatively easily, fairly quickly. We can't. We are absolutely defenseless. We are vulnerable. We will die if left uncared for. And so it seems to be that God is trying to communicate something that when he wants to show that he's at work, he produces a child or he centers on a child. And it's in the weakness of God that his strength becomes displayed. If you think about it, the Christmas story really is the tale of two pregnancies. It's Mary's pregnancy of the Holy Spirit, and it's Zechariah and Elizabeth's pregnancy. And think about, this is very important in terms of thinking about this theologically. This is not an accident. These two pregnancies are on purpose in fulfillment of prophecy. If you think about it, both the book of Exodus and 1 Samuel begin with stories of women struggling with birth. Both stories tie into the larger story of Israel as a nation. They are experiencing birth pangs. For 400 years, God has been silent. They've seemed to be abandoned altogether to the Roman nation. It doesn't seem like there's much hope. And the struggle in the womb of Egypt to give birth was a struggle to give birth to God's firstborn son. And much like Samuel is not the king, but prepares the way for him, so John is preparing the way for the new David, the son of David. So John the Baptist, is, as he's been called because he baptizes, but John is being referred to here and highlighted here as, a, as, a, as like a second Samuel, not the book of second Samuel, but a type of a Samuel who was to come and prepare the way for the king. Samuel wasn't the king. Hannah struggled with infertility and whether or not she was going to have a son, and then she has one. And, but Samuel is the forerunner. Samuel is the one who's going to announce the coming of the king. And so it is with John and the coming king Jesus. As we considered last week, the Christmas story is born out of heartache. It begins with a window into the deep longing of a suffering people. And this really is as it should be. 
I'm glad that we both sang about suffering, heard about suffering in Bryce's testimony, because Christmas really has suffering at a heart of it. We prayed even for those of us in our own church who are facing suffering and loss this season. Fleming Rutledge says, The great theme of Advent is hope, and it is not tolerable to speak of hope unless we're willing to look squarely at the overwhelming presence of evil in the world. This is why Christmas, as we read about it in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke specifically, John just jumps right in to, the, to announcing the eternality of the Son of God, but Matthew, Mark, and Luke give us a birth narrative, and here we are confronted with the evil that is present in the world as a backdrop for the coming of Christ. And this morning, as we consider Zechariah and Elizabeth, we're going, to, we're going to learn about waiting on God. We're going to learn about what it costs them, what it looked like for them to wait on the Lord, and then how the Lord brought more than they could ever imagine through waiting. Now, I don't know about you, but Advent, the Christmas season, is really all about waiting, and it's the season where nobody's waiting. <laughs> it's, uh, it's marked, at least in our household, by a great deal of impatience, by a great deal of, can you just tell me what my gifts are, please? But waiting is just not in our, it's not in us. It's not, it's not something any of us likes to do. And yet, this story forces us to slow down and wait. So let's consider what we learn about waiting here from Luke chapter 1. First of all, waiting on God requires walking with God. We come to Elizabeth this morning, the wife of a priest named Zechariah. Safe to say, these people please the Lord. We see that very clearly as it's told to us in the early verses of this section that Elizabeth and Zechariah, her husband, were both blameless and righteous. That doesn't mean they were sinless, but it means they were full of integrity and walked authentically with the Lord. And what, makes, what Luke makes clear is that their suffering and their struggles have nothing to do with their personal sin. Their pain was not grounded in the evil that was within them, but was rather a personal anguish resulting from the fall in the world, namely infertility. Dan Darling helps us understand something of the shame that this would have brought this couple. To suffer the indignity of infertility is cruel in any age, he says, but was especially difficult in the first century when the ability to conceive was seen as a direct sign of God's blessing. Now think about this. A priest's family can't have a baby. And yet the sign of God's blessing is to have a baby. And yet you have someone who has devoted their life to serving the Lord and his wife unable to conceive. Well, that must be something wrong with the priest. New Testament theologian John Byron writes, socially, the position of the childless woman in the Hebrew Bible is ranked among the most despised, the poor, the helpless, the widow, and contrasted with the mother who is blessed, joyful, and rich in children, end quote. Unless we think Elizabeth was the only one suffering here, Zechariah was not without his own pain, he had not been fruitful and multiplied, as was commanded in Genesis 1.28 or Genesis 35.11. While childlessness was perceived as a grave misfortune for both men and women, Jewish scholar Judith Baskin writes, a male's failure to generate offspring violated a legal obligation since men alone were obligated to have children. So he had failed in his responsibility, not only as a priest, but as a husband. So at this point in their lives, they had resigned themselves, probably praying, 
but this may be our fate. This may be what God has for us. Never would they hear the soft whisper of a child's first words. Never would they walk a son or a daughter to the temple. Never would they have the sweet privilege of handing down the story of Israel to a generation of their own. And as I said, Luke carefully juxtaposes the righteousness of Zechariah and Elizabeth and their infertility in a way that makes it very clear to us that their inability to bear children had nothing to do with their own sin. Look at verse 5 again, where we read, In the days of Herod, king of Judah, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron. So I want you to appreciate what Luke's doing here. He's saying he's a priest after a very well-respected priestly class whose wife is a daughter of Aaron, the great high priest of Israel. So this is a family that is immensely blessed. And then verse 6, they were, they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. In other words, they weren't just leaning on their family pedigree. They had a real, living, vibrant relationship with God. And yet, verse 7 they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. 60s, probably, maybe even 70 years old. So, this conclusion that it must be Zachariah and Elizabeth's fault that they're infertile doesn't come from God's word. It comes from the bad counsel of people like Job's three friends. Remember, Job's three friends came and assumed that the reason Job had suffered so much is that he had some hidden sin in his life. But we know better. Job was faithful, and so were Zechariah and Elizabeth. Zechariah was, in fact, actively serving God in the midst of this. Look at verse 8. Now, while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, see, these divisions of priests were required to serve at the temple several weeks out of the year, and he was on duty this week to serve in the temple. Verse 9, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. This was the highest privilege a priest could be given, to burn incense on the altar of incense in the temple. Verse 10, and the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. There were 24 divisions of priests, and every division would have two weeks out of the year to serve the temple, and this was Zechariah's time to be on call to be on active duty. And this was the day when Zechariah is given the highest honor a priest can receive, to burn incense in the temple. Even though Zechariah and Elizabeth were facing unspeakable heartbreak, what do they do? They draw near to God. They continue doing what they're supposed to be doing. See, so often when we're facing with disappointment and we're waiting on the Lord and we're struggling, we check out a life. But what, what's happening right here is Zechariah and Elizabeth are providing us a pattern for what to do when you're waiting on God. Keep walking with God. Don't give up. Don't cast in the towel. Keep doing what you're supposed to be doing. Draw near to God. Their suffering did not make them jaded. It did not make them cynical. In a broken world, brothers and sisters, very bad things often happen to very godly people. And today, maybe you find yourself there. You're faithful, and yet you suffer in silence. No cure for your illness, no new job on the horizon, no positive pregnancy test, and yet here you are in the assembly of the church worshiping God. Instead of cursing Him in your disappointment, you're blessing Him while you wait. And that is the appropriate response for what Zachariah and Elizabeth teach us to do as well. 
Listen, friends, the gestation of God's work can take a long time. Malachi 4 was the last time God spoke, and that was 400 years before this account took place. I want to apply this to us and tell you that waiting is an active thing. Waiting is not passive. We can think of waiting as passive if you're sitting in a doctor's office or you're waiting at a traffic light. That's very passive. But, th- but in the Bible, waiting is very active. In Scripture, it's never passive. Waiting is a display of glorious weakness where we move deliberately and consistently toward God in prayerful dependence, asking Him to do what only He can do. For David, it required strength and courage. He said in Psalm 38, 15, But for you, O Lord, do I wait. It is you, O Lord, my God, who will answer. Make no mistake, waiting takes guts. Waiting supplies power as well. Isaiah 40, 31, But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Listen, when we wait on the Lord actively, prayerfully, dependently, we get lifted. We experience resilience. We find strength for the long game. That's what Zachariah and Elizabeth are experiencing as they wait on the Lord while walking with God. Second point, waiting on God reveals weakness in us. Waiting on God reveals weakness in us. Now, Zachariah and Elizabeth, according to verse 6, are righteous before God and walking blamelessly in all the commandments of the Lord. But Zechariah is getting ready to get confronted with his own weakness, his own lack of faith, his own struggles. And this is a kindness from God because this is real life, brothers and sisters. You can be righteous and blameless and full of integrity and stumble and struggle and doubt and have unbelief. Zechariah receives a word from God in verse 11, that God has heard his prayer. Look at verse 11. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. He's in the temple. Notice verse 12. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. Verse 13. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. And your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. So what's clear here is he was praying about this. He was praying about the barrenness that was existing in Elizabeth's life, and he was recognizing, I haven't, I haven't done what I'm supposed to produce children. I, this hasn't happened. Why isn't it happening? And yet the angel comes and says, don't be afraid. Because maybe he thought, text doesn't tell us this, this is, but maybe he thought, oh no, the angels come to kill me. I've done something wrong. That's why we can't have children. And the angel comes, Gabriel, and reassures him, no, this has nothing to do with that. I know what you've done. I know the life you've lived. I've come here to give you good news. But he's afraid at first. He's troubled. It says fear fell upon him. And then in verse 14, you shall have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. What a breath of fresh air that must have been. Verse 15, for he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink. He'll be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and, the, and he will go before them in the spirit and power of Elijah, Q Malachi 4, to turn the hearts of their fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. 
We're not told why the people in verse 10 are gathered outside the temple praying, assuming that would probably just be the time where the priesthood is offering uh, the incense on the altar and the people are gathered there for worship as well and they're praying as the incense is being offered. We're not given any insight into what specifically they're praying. Perhaps they're praying for God to visit them. This would have been a frequent thing in the people of Israel because they, God had promised in Malachi 4 that he was not done with his people, that he was going to come again in the spirit and power of Elijah to bring deliverance to them. And, he was, and they were perhaps praying that. We know that Zechariah and Elizabeth, as I said, were praying specifically regarding their own barrenness. But here's what we learn about prayer. Your prayers are not rejected just because God's answers are delayed. God... God no doubt heard all of their prayers and did not answer them to any degree on the timetable that they were expecting. Brothers and sisters, he may not come when you want him, but he's always on time. His response, that is Zechariah's response, is one of what? Stunned unbelief. Look at verse 18. Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? In other words, how shall I know all that, that you're promising me is going to take place. For I am old man, and my wife is advanced in years. Verse 19, the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. Remember Daniel? Remember the book of Daniel? Hey, that's me. I'm Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. I was sent here to give you good news. That's enough. It's the, the, I'm here. That's enough. And what I've just said, and... But yet Zechariah responds, yeah, I need a little more. I need a little more evidence that you're really going to fulfill. So it's a knock at God's integrity. It's a knock at God's messenger. Notice what happens in verse 20. Behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. The angel indicates that his response, Zechariah's response, however innocent it may sound to us, was actually an expression of unbelief. And his response was encrusted in doubt that he had no warrant to take. He should have known better. Zechariah should have known better. If, any, if a priest should know anything about God from the Old Testament, what is that? It's that God can open old barren wombs. He has a track record of doing that. In fact, the whole story of Israel, of which Zechariah is a priest, is that they are the children of a barren womb. <laughs> He's serving as a priest in Israel, a nation that was formed out of an old barren womb. And somehow he doubts that God's going to be able to do that again. Dan Darling says, God loves to hear our doubts, to field our questions, and hear our anguished cries. But it is disbelief that is a sin. Our unwillingness to trust that God can do the impossible. And so Zechariah's punishment was to be struck mute for the duration of Elizabeth's pregnancy. We see this waiting revealed weakness in Zechariah. And does not it do the same for us when we are faced with disappointment or trial or difficulty or suffering that we begin to doubt God and we know that he's done things in the past but he certainly won't do them for us even though he's our father and we're his child and we begin to doubt and if not if we're not careful with how we handle those doubts going to the Lord in repentant faith 
knowing his welcome again as we come messy and saying, God, I should not think like this. I should not speak like this. This is wrong. You've done me no wrong. You've only treated me with steadfast love and mercy all the days of my life, and yet I struggle. God welcomes all that, but what he will not welcome is our stubborn unwillingness to believe him. We see this in verse 21 through 23, the result. The people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple, and when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple, and he kept making signs to them and remained mute, and when his time of service was ended, he went to his own, to his home. Really, this affliction was not so much a punishment as it was a gift. I want to show you how this was a gift to Zechariah. First of all, Elizabeth gets a quiet husband. And all God's ladies said, Amen. Sometimes the greatest gift a godly wife can receive is a mute husband. But that's not the main point of the passage. Really, this affliction is less of a punishment and more of a gift in that this. This is a season where Zechariah is going to have to do less talking and more listening. He's going to have to be silent before God. And that is a great gift, to be forced to sit in silence before God. Christmas is a good time to be quiet. After all, it is all about an announcement. And what happens when you're getting an announcement? Be quiet and listen. I've got good news to share. Pay close attention. Sometimes God has to quiet us so that we can hear him. And sometimes our words and our busyness are an obstacle to our faith, and God makes us weak and still and mute and dumb so we can hear him. As C.S. Lewis says, God shouts in our pain. When we're experiencing pain, that's when God's voice is loudest. In our prosperity, it's not even there. Oftentimes in our just everydayness, his voice is a whisper. But in our pain, he's shouting. John Piper says, if we don't seek out silence, we will probably not feel the stupendous significance of God's work in history on our lives. It, could be a rare, it would be a rare thing to be gripped and moved deeply in a noisy room. There's a close correlation between stillness and a sense of the stupendous. The most astonishing things about reality will probably be missed by those who use the radio and TV for constant background drone. Be still, be mute and deaf, and know that I am God. What would it mean for your life if for nine months you could not hear or say anything? I've tried to imagine what it would mean for my ministry and home life. No preaching, no counseling, no singing, but lots more seeing. Lots more looking into the eyes of my wife and sons. Lots more reading the great books. Lots more writing journals, poems, letters, thoughts about life. Lots more prayer and meditation on the word of God. All in absolute silence. If God should ever give me such a period, I hope that I would turn it into as much good as Zechariah did. End quote. So I want you to see that while this discipline was a punishment for Zechariah, for his unbelief, it was a gift hidden. God's discipline is always like that in our lives, brothers and sisters. There's always a gift hidden in it, a gift of knowing him more, a gift of drawing closer to him, even as we experience his, his fatherly discipline at times. God Waiting on God reveals weakness in us. Thirdly and finally, waiting on God results in worship. Waiting on God results in worship. First of all, we're going to see Elizabeth's worship, and then we'll see Zacharias. Look at Elizabeth first in verse 24. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden. 
saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach from among the people. See, she's experiencing worship here as she recognizes that God is lifting her disgrace. And in this time of suffering and in this time of distress that so many of us experience, we need to call to mind that God is faithful. What does Zechariah's name mean? The Lord has remembered. The Lord has remembered. And this is a theme in all of Scripture. God visits the barren. This story points us back to Sarah and Abraham, two old barren people, and John is like a new Isaac. He's a, he's a miracle child. Just as God heard the cries of Sarah and Rebecca and Rachel and Hannah and Michael, David's wife, though advanced in years, Elizabeth becomes pregnant through God's miraculous intervention, and her son becomes John. Understandably, Elizabeth was thrilled to have a baby after years, perhaps decades, of resigning herself to never becoming a mother would make any woman rejoice. She also could rejoice in knowing her husband's disappointment of not being a father would become a faded memory. But part of Elizabeth's joy was related to the shame that was attendant to childlessness in Jewish culture. And this is the context of Elizabeth proclaiming that by virtue of having this baby, her disgrace, her reproach from among her people is being taken away. She felt she had failed her husband. She'd failed God. She failed her husband, who was a man of prominence, whose duty was to help Israel flourish, who served in the temple and served as a priest. And yet she could not give him the baby he desired. And she could not have the baby she desired. So in Elizabeth's case, a disgrace had been lifted. And in the words of David, God had turned her mourning into dancing. God never wastes adversity in the lives of his children. The conception of John does not mean that every yearning couple will have a happy childbirth. Far from it. There are always, and there always has been, and there always will be, people who are godly and prayerful who don't have children, whose children, children were not given to them. None of us can know when we get married whether or not God will grant us this precious gift. But here's what you can know, brothers and sisters. We can all know that the conception and birth of John the Baptist points forward to a much greater gift. This particularly painful disgrace that was experienced by Zachariah and Elizabeth is vividly replaced by the gift of grace. That boy will be the herald of a deeper, more wonderful promise. So whether your present experience is of sadness or joy, use this season to quietly pin your hopes, not upon a change in your circumstances, but upon the great certain circumstance of the future that John the Baptist pointed to, namely the birth of Jesus. And think about your marks of disgrace and thank God that in Christ they are not a punishment for your personal sins, but Christ has removed your disgrace by taking your sins and rejoice that when Jesus returns every one of those painful marks will be taken away I'm not going to take the time to read it we've already read it at the beginning but you see in verses 57 beginning at verse 57 all the way through the end of the chapter the celebration that that ensues as a result of this I just want you to look at how Zachariah Zachariah responds in verse 59 
On the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zachariah after his father. But his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is by this name. And they made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted to be called. In verse 63, Zachariah says, Call him John. And at that point, verse 64, immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed, and he spoke, Blessing God. And he does that from verse 67 all the way through the end of the chapter. Brothers and sisters, this is the real story of Christmas. Brokenness and new birth. That's the story of Christmas. And the same God who birthed life in Elizabeth is the same God who breathed renewing life into Zechariah and breathes new life into us. Zechariah is a wonderful example of someone who has experienced renewal and repentance. Every genuine act of repentance is met by contrition and fresh obedience. There's always a break with the old ways. Zechariah is renewed. He's changed. He's different. He's resigned to God. No cheap grace here. He was met with God's power and grace, and he was changed. We gain an important lesson here. Notice how Zechariah immediately responds to God's word. Gabriel said, call him John. His name's John. No argument with the angel this time. No argument. He learned his lesson. He's changed. He's, I remember what happened to me last time. I'm still suffering under this effect. I'm, his name is John, Elizabeth. But no doubt his heart was in that as well. When he was disciplined and rebuked, he changed. He's not playing games. It's so important that when God's word confronts us that we respond appropriately. Ray Ortland said, Every time you hear the word of God preached, you come away from that exposure either a little closer to God or a little further away from God, either more softened or more hardened. But you're never just the same. And if you think you can hold the gospel at arm's length, listen to me, kids. Listen to me, adults who are not yet believing, if you think you can hold the gospel at arm's length in critical detachment, that very posture reveals that you're already deadened. The same truth enlivening someone else is hardening you. And don't tell yourself that if only God would perform a miracle in your life, you'd believe and open up. Jesus performed miracles, and the people who saw him only became further hardened. Read John 12, 37 to 41. If God's word won't save you, what will? He responds with worship, and so should we. Listen, brothers and sisters, if our heart does not leap at God's grace in Christ, what you need is more grace. Nothing else can save you from your own deadness. Therefore, fear your own hardness of heart more than anything else. This is what Zechariah would tell us. Listen, when you disobey God and you're disciplined, fear that. Don't let that harden you. Let that make you soft and tender and pliable. Fear that hardness of heart. Beware of rigidity. Beware of ingratitude. Beware of a demanding spirit. Beware of an unmelted heart that is never satisfied. Beware of a mind that looks for excuses not to believe. Beware of the impulse that always finds a reason to delay responding to God. Beware of thinking how this sermon applies to somebody else. God watches how you hear his word. Finally, in conclusion, Dan Darling once again reminds us, the message of Christmas then is not about manufacturing sentimental feelings in vain hopes of a miracle. It's about believing the reality that God has birthed something new in Jesus, and because of this, God will birth something new in you and me. 
And that newness is breaking out still today in the hearts of God's people amidst a broken world. Sinful, dead hearts finding life again. And we at Christmas sit in silence and wait another advent when that child returns as the conquering king to complete his mission to restore hearts and renew the world. Christmas is all about God bringing heaven to earth, bringing his light into our darkness. Do you realize that it is God's will for his kingdom of glory to come into your life and for his will to be done in you as it is done in heaven? Do you realize that it's God's will to make this earth into an extension of his throne room in heaven? Heaven is expanding and it's spreading in our direction. That is the meaning of our existence. If you will accept it and enter in, heaven is taking over. Yield. Let's pray. Father, how we thank you that heaven is taking over. Slowly but surely, heaven is taking over. It's been taking over since Genesis 3 when our first parents sinned and plunged this world into ruin and corruption. And yet, since that day, there has been a promise. There would be the seed of the woman that would come and crush the seed of the serpent. And we thank you, Jesus, that you are that promised seed, that you have come into the world, and we celebrate that coming, but more than that, we even anticipate your second coming, where heaven will take over, and all those who are in your kingdom now will be in your kingdom forever. And all those who have gone on before us who were in your kingdom in this life will be in your kingdom there. We pray that everyone in this room who is not yet in your kingdom would be in your kingdom through repentance and faith in the coming king, the Lord Jesus Christ. That like Zachariah and Elizabeth, we would learn to walk with you and wait on you and trust you and confess our sins to you and acknowledge our wrongs to you so that ultimately we might brought, be brought to a place of worship of you which is what we want to do now in response. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together and sing. Truly he told